Extreme weather is part of living in Alaska, but this winter has already seen an extraordinary level of wind, snow, and ice-related events around the state. When disaster strikes, what is the process to declare an emergency and begin responding to a community's needs? How do state, federal, local, and tribal partners coordinate? And what kind of relief is available to individuals affected by a disaster? We're discussing emergency response today on Talk of Alaska. Talk of Alaska is brought to you in part by your local public radio station. Alaska's unique approach to mental health funding is improving the lives of Alaskans who experience behavioral health conditions and developmental disabilities. The Alaska Mental Health Trust Authority has a responsibility to generate revenue from its one million acres of land and the resources they contain. The trust uses this revenue to help fund statewide programs and initiatives that positively impact trust beneficiaries. To learn more, visit alaskamentalhealthtrust.org. This message sponsored by the Alaska Mental Health Trust. The Alaska Travel Industry Association provides leadership and guidance to Alaska's tourism businesses for how to operate safely across the state. Members can access updated industry resources related to COVID-19 at alaskatia.org. This message sponsored by ATIA. The views expressed on this program are those of the participants and not necessarily those of Alaska Public Media, this station, or its underwriters. Hello, it's Talk of Alaska. I'm Lori Townsend. Climate scientists are quick to remind us that weather is not the climate. But climate models are increasingly accurate and indicate there will be more extreme weather events in the future. And as we've seen through countless news stories, crazy weather can lead to landslides, flooding, and snow loads that can cause infrastructure failure. Once a local disaster happens, what triggers the government response that can lead to financial support to help communities recover? And how should community managers and planners build climate resilience into their future infrastructure plans? Joining me today to discuss disaster response is Brian Fisher, director of the Alaska Division of Homeland Security and Emergency Management. Also with us is John Erickson, city manager for Yakutat in southeast Alaska, and Casey Cook, Emergency Manager for the Matanuska Susitna Borough. Thanks all of you for being here with us today. And you can also join the conversation, Alaskans. What kinds of preparations have you and your family or community undertaken to prepare for the worst case scenario? Or are you having, uh, have you made plans or are you looking to learn more about what plans you should make today? As climate change effects become a growing concern, what disaster scenarios keep you up at night? You can give us a call statewide at 1-800-478-8255, 1-800-478-8255. If you're in Anchorage, the local number is 550 550-8422. You can also email us questions or comments to talk at alaskapublic.org. So, Brian, let's uh, start off by getting caught up on the situation so far this winter. Uh, today is the 1st of February. You said there have been four state-level disaster declarations and one federal declaration just since Halloween. How unusual is that? Thanks, Lori. And, uh, Good morning, everybody. Uh, I, I'd, I'd say it's it's pretty extraordinary. You said that in your opening comments, like you know the weather patterns that we've had in Alaska. Um, you know, it's certainly it's winter time up here. We're all used to 
winter weather and snow and ice and those type of things. But um, the the significant rain events that we had right around the holiday, uh, the Halloween weekend in um, the Kenai Peninsula Borough and the municipality of Anchorage, you know, it was anywhere between a 500 and 1,000 year rainfall event in the Girdwood area. And then uh, pretty much over the Christmas holiday and the New Year's holiday, we saw some really extreme uh, temperatures and, and weather across the interior. A whole lot of snow, which is fairly typical for us. But there was a there was a warm up in in the interior that caused a significant amount of rainfall to happen. You know, you don't think that it's going to rain in, in Delta Junction or Fairbanks in December in Alaska, but it did. And then that was followed by more uh, pretty heavy snow loads and then kind of normal temperatures uh, well below zero in the area that has caused some some pretty uh, dramatic uh, impacts to the roads to access to people's homes. Um, then, of course, we saw the, the significant windstorm that impacted the, the Bandunuskasusitna Valley um, that caused some, some damage to businesses and uh, resident, residents and homes as well. So the weather has just been pretty incredible. Having four four state disasters and one federal disaster in that short of a time span is uh, fairly unusual for us. Well, and as you were pointing out, disasters don't just uh, happen in the wintertime. There's been the rain and flooding events. We've seen catastrophic fires in recent years. Does it appear that the trajectory of extreme weather events are increasing? Yeah, I I think on average, you know, we do see uh, a a good handful, anywhere between two and five or six uh, declared disasters a year in this state. So, that I would say is fairly average. However, the the impacts of those weather events, um, whether we have uh, we're leading towards a drought year that impacts um, the catastrophic wildfires that we saw from a couple of years ago, um, or just the amount of sea storms we see, how fast the rivers break up in the spring, we do, we certainly are seeing extremes to those weather events where before you would consider it a typical seasonal event, and now we see them. Uh, extreme to the point where they are causing damage and hardship, and we're looking at declaring disasters. Mm -hmm. If you're just joining us, this is Talk of Alaska, and we're discussing extreme weather and disaster declarations and what triggers those um, government responses when something happens in a community. On the line with us are Brian Fisher, the director of the Alaska Division of Homeland Security and Emergency Management. John Erickson is the city manager for Yakutat in Southeast, and Casey Cook is the emergency manager for the Matanuska Susitna Borough. Casey, uh, Brian referenced this a bit. Oh, and I should also mention that if you'd like to join us, you can call in 1-800-478-8255. That number statewide again is 1-800-478-8255. In Anchorage, the local number is 550-8422. You can also email us, talk at alaskapublic.org. Casey, uh, Brian talked just a bit about the situation in the Matsu, but describe for us the emergency situation that happened at the beginning of the year. Sure. So um, January 1st, um, you know, the wind started blowing and it's getting up to speeds of 91, 92, you know, close to 100 in some areas. So hurricane force winds. Um, and it wasn't so much that it was blowing just one day, it was for repeated days, you know, three or four days of sustained um, wind speeds and then large gusts of wind coming in and blowing down trees and knocking out power lines and um, blocking roads and then drifting snow as well. So it was kind of a, a whole bunch of stuff, kind of a hurricane at negative temperatures. 
And and so are you still assessing the amount of damage or where are you at in the process in the valley with um, figuring out how much repair work is going to be needed? Yes, we are. So we're still looking at um, getting reports in not only from individual homeowners, and Brian can talk about that program because um, his folks kind of deal with that, but we uh, we get reports of damage from homeowners. We get reports of damage from business owners and then non-profit uh, companies as well and then public infrastructure. And so we're still going through and making sure that we have over 270 debris sites right now where um, either our contractors or MEA crews went and cleared trees off of roads or put trees next to roads. And so um, we're still having to go through and look for those debris areas and then we have to track them to clean them up in the spring and so yeah so it'll be a ongoing process of debris management and site um, surveys um, to see where the damages were all throughout the borough. I remember after the windstorm in Anchorage in 2012 I lost a tree in my backyard and there was trees and debris all over the place for quite a long time it took a while to get the, all of that cleaned up do you think that is one of the things that kind of set apart what happened on January 1st in the valley, um, the the length, the duration of those high winds? Um, I know that in 2012 it was a ferocious wind, but you know it blew for some hours in the evening, and then that was then it was over. Oh, uh, definitely. I think you know once you once you get a few hours of wind, whether the speeds are high or not, but then you know, quadruple that by four days of high speeds, winds, and um, having to deal with the hurricane and the power loss and all those types of things. It just it just exaggerates the problem of high winds, right? Um, and so <clears throat> the cleanup to that, because you get a tree blowing down from Palmer ending up in, you know, Meadow Lakes type of thing, you know, being facetious, of course, but that's the kind of thing we were looking at because the wind just keeps blowing stuff around and cycling through and circling and um, you never know whose uh, garbage can might end up in your yard or what community it might be from. So I think that was the big thing was just repeated days of high speed winds. And the danger for folks that after a couple of days, if you have to go out in those winds, there's a lot of danger associated with debris flying around if people are out on the roads, correct? Right. So there's debris, you know, and not only that, but then any any moisture that was on the roads before and it gets super cooled. Um, so then the roads are, you know, sheets of ice and then the flying debris um, and then the power lines being down as well. And you never know when the tree in your yard is going to fall down. Um, and so you don't want to necessarily be out there cleaning up, you know, in the midst of the windstorm type of thing. Absolutely. Thank you, Casey, for uh, giving us a description of what's happening right now in the Valley, and you're still assessing the damage out there and cleaning up. John Erickson, what about Yakutat? Uh, Many parts of Southeast Alaska have experienced considerable snowfall amounts this year, but Yakutat's situation was especially dire. Why was that? Tell us about what was happening. Yeah, sure, Lori. I'll I'll tell you. Um, We're Yakutat, what we had happen was uh, we had an an unusual amount of snow, and, you know, Yakutat is used to getting lots of rain, uh, 10 to 14 feet of rain a year. But this is uh, 
starting at about November, December, we started getting uh, heavy amounts of snow, and then we got sub-zero temperatures. And sub-zero temperatures, we don't see those around here um, about every four or five years. So we had five or six feet of snow on the ground with and was staying, and then sub-zero temperatures, and then it started to rain on top of that. And I had my uh, staff, but uh, we're, we're a small borough, and I have a few a few employees. And we were out there shoveling, and we just ran out of people and ran out of energy to keep going. Um, and it started to rain on the buildings, and so all of a sudden the weight load people were saying well the school could collapse so we had to cancel the school and the tribe the building could collapse and so we had to shut down the tribe and they were worried about the uh, water towers and uh, you know our water storage that on that roof that, that they would fall in and then also here in uh, you know city hall we lost a few um building caves in but more garages and those kinds of things and uh, then the clinic which is a brand new 11 million dollar Indian Health Service clinic um, just opened up about six months ago um, it had so much snow on the roof that uh, it sprung a leak and so here we have this beautiful clinic and it's raining inside and uh, and we have hardly anyone to go do it so that's to clean up so it's been a it's been a lot of uh, real challenge and you know we thank god for andrew and and the emergency management people john i it's it would be hard for people some people to imagine that much snow you mentioned that yakutat normally gets did you say 10 to 14 feet of rain per year? That's what you normally get? <laughs> yeah, that's, isn't that funny? Yeah, and we get a lot of rain, and we'll get we'll get a rainstorm with two or three inches in two or three days. Um, but it's, it's so used to it that the ground is pretty much gravelly that we really don't have much flooding, um, which always surprised me, but... Uh, yeah, it's not uh, 40 or 50 inches of rain. It's uh, 10 to 14 feet. And when I think about uh, if more of that fell as snow, um, as you experienced, you know, just recently with this terrific event where you had so much snow and then rain got mixed in, how are you thinking about that for the future if there's more of these uh, heavy snow events in an area that... It is very productive precipitation-wise. Well, you know, back in the 70s and 80s when they designed our schools and when the you know designers were thinking about it, they were thinking about designing it for rainfall. Um, and so they made the roofs on the schools and other things flat so that the uh, they wouldn't uh, the snow doesn't fall off and hit children. Uh, so they want the snow to stay up there. Um, but, you know, they're figuring 150 pounds to 125 pounds per square foot. And um, the high school is probably getting up to close to 200 pounds per square foot. So we could have the thing cave in, but thank goodness that we got the National Guard to come down. 
That's really interesting. So the the roof was designed flat with the thought of not letting snow fall on children. That's that that's really an interesting thing to know because when I see flat roofs in Alaska, I think did somebody move here from a very warm state and built that place and didn't realize that a flat roof could be problem for snow? But you're saying that it was specifically designed that way. Yeah, Lori. Um, you know, I mean, the powers that be, they, uh, who were designing schools back in the 70s and 80s, uh, there were, they were more concerned about snow sliding off and hurting people than uh, the snow load, and naturally they didn't think about they used, if that all, that 10 or 10 feet of rain came down in the snow, we would uh, um, be in big trouble. But that's why I, I think in the future maybe more slopes, more peaks on roofs is going to have to be where we go to make ourselves more resilient. I know Valdez gets more snow than we do, but they're a little colder, and they get a lot of the rain too. If you're just joining us, this is Talk of Alaska, and we're discussing the recent extreme weather events that have happened in our state so far this winter. Today's the 1st of February. There could be more. Uh, hopefully, folks will be able to stay safe and and um, be able to deal with what comes their way. But we're talking about how communities can respond to these events when the government gets involved and how disaster declarations are decided on and what that triggers our guests today are Brian Fisher, Director of the Alaska Division of Homeland Security and Emergency Management, John Erickson, City Manager for Yakutat in Southeast, and Casey Cook, the Emergency Manager for the Matanuska Susitna Borough. You can join our conversations if you had to dig yourself out of one of these terrific storms or you're still um, assessing damage. You may have questions for these emergency managers about how you can access individual assistance. Our numbers statewide are 1-800-478-8255. That's 1-800-478-8255. If you're in Anchorage, the local number is 550-8422, 550-8422. And you can email us, talk at alaskapublic.org. Brian, we've been hearing about the disaster in the Matsu and in Yakutat. What are the conditions that need to be met for uh, a disaster declaration to be made. And then um, once you get clarity on that, what kind of response does that trigger? Thanks, Lori. So I, to start off, I'd say there's, there's three different types of uh, disaster emergency declarations, and it really depends on the, the level of government, with, if you will. So there are local disaster declarations, state declarations, as well as federal declarations. And really at the local level, um, those declarations are, are made really based on the situation. You know, Casey described some of the impacts as the winds were still blowing, um, all of the trees that were down, the, the, uh, the extended power outage that happened throughout the valley. Um, there was certainly a risk to uh, public safety um, for folks being out on the roads. You know, I think the police departments out there asked people to stay home and stay off the roads because of the danger for debris flying around. Um, so w when an event initially happens, you know, it's really a judgment call at the local level on whether or not they need to declare a disaster to, to do things like shut roads down to uh, implement response measures. You know, it could be in the summertime um, or in the spring, it could be 
to implement sandbagging to to protect homes from riverine flooding, that kind of thing. So um, additionally, at the local level, uh, disasters are frequently declared because the city or the borough's charter or ordinances require it. Um, for example, if Casey had to do some emergency procurement to contract additional vehicles to clean up the debris he was talking about earlier, those kind of things, then 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 those those items are uh, considered when declaring a, a local disaster. Um, at the state level, we look at the need to provide supplemental assistance to the local jurisdiction. I think uh, John's example was a good one. Um, we did the kind of the exact same thing about a decade ago in Cordova. There was such incredible amount of snow that fell for such a long time that local resources were just exhausted. And, you know, John had the, the city and borough of Yakutat were trying to hire local laborers to shovel roofs and, and do that kind of thing. But they also live there. They have to clean their own rooms. So they were really, really tapped out. So John, um, with understanding the damages that were happening to the clinic that he spoke about, John contacted us at the state and requested emergency assistance in the form of the National Guard to come down and help clear, you know, the snow off the schools and uh, other public uh, buildings, government buildings that were down there. Um, the clinic had hired some contractors to remove snow from their facility. Uh, so in that respect, we de the governor declared a disaster pretty much immediately based on John's request so we could get those those folks uh, those great people from the Alaska National Guard uh, down to Yakutat to assist with those snow removal operations to prevent catastrophic failures of, you know, critical facilities in the community. Um, outside of those emergency response situations, they don't happen very often. Um, sometimes during wildfires, during the earthquake in 2018, um, we get a declaration pretty quick uh, at the state level. In other instances, the state disaster declaration really opens up uh, the potential for funding to come in to help rebuild and repair kind of on the back end. Um, our communities are very, very resilient. They're used to dealing with um, uh, incidents, you know, weather incidents uh, like we're talking about all the time. But there is a cost to that rebuilding and repairing. There's lots of infrastructure around the state that can't be insured. Um, you know, we certainly encourage insurance for everybody from the homeowner to uh, to communities, school districts, uh, that kind of thing. But at some point, the disaster causes enough damage where, where those costs are over and above anything that was budgeted for at the local level. Insurance uh, comes to play, but isn't sufficient. And that's really where the state, through the governor, through funding provided by the legislature, comes into play to help uh, provide reimbursement to, to really do that repair and rebuilding effort um, out there. And then subsequently, if, if we have a disaster that is uh, larger than we feel the state can handle, either financially or because of uh, you know, specialty equipment or responses that we need, then the governor in turn can, turn, can uh, make a request to the president for a federal disaster declaration. And that just brings in even more uh, capabilities and resources, you know, the full force of the federal government and uh, funding provided through Congress to, uh, to assist in that rebuilding and repairing as well. It typically happens, um, you know, the Halloween storm that we had was is both a state declared disaster as well as a federal disaster. The federal government will help provide reimbursement up to 75% of the costs of that da the damage from that storm. And then the state picks up the other 25% by funding that's uh, appropriated by the legislature. So 
Um, in some cases, it, it's really for emergency response. Think of urban search and rescue teams if we had a bunch of building collapses. Uh, in other cases, it's really for financial support on the back end to, to get back to normal after the, the damages that happened from the storm or the event. So uh, when John was talking about the damage to the Yakutat Clinic, brand new clinic, it's an IHS facility, Indian Health Service facility, uh, the layers of government that we have in Alaska, as many other states, there's state, there's federal, there's tribal. How? What happens when uh, you have a disaster such as in Yakutat, and this is a facility that was federally funded to be built? How, how does that um, change how you look at the disaster declaration and who has to be involved in the response? Thanks for that. I, I, I think it really doesn't change our response to it. Um, and that's a great example. You know, the Indian Health Service provided funding to build that clinic. Uh, you know, it's operated by the tribe. Um, from our perspective, it doesn't matter um, who owns it, who's responsible for it, um, insurance or not insurance. The, the, the key for the state is to make sure that we can uh, restore those critical lifelines and those critical services to the community. So as we were talking to John about um, the clearing, clearing the snow off of the, the municipal buildings and the school buildings, if you will, in Yakutat, we were also talking to the tribe and the clinic CEO to understand what they needed from us in terms of either snow removal or as we get into the recovery process, funding that may be necessary after insurance pays to uh, help facilitate repairs to the clinic so it can provide the health services that, that, that are needed in the community. All right. Uh, thank you for that. We are going to go to the phones for just a moment. Uh, Thomas is in Palmer. Hi, Thomas. Hi. Hi um, thanks for my call. Um, I'm in a little bubble here, uh, and the wind was howling. You couldn't go out the door, I tell you. You really couldn't go out the door, and the power kept going off and on and off and on. They kept restoring the power. And you couldn't even walk out there. And I thought that was an amazing crew to be out in those conditions uh, where you literally it would blow you away if you were out there walking in it. And they kept restoring the power. I would like to talk about how I prepared for the storm before the storm hit last fall. And so when the power was out for 10 hours, my, my heat continued and my little one light light bulb continued um i bought me a thousand watt inverter at the auto parts store where you know you connect it to a 12 volt battery with jumper cables like thing <laughs> and i have a spare battery and a battery charger and I, I brought the and the battery was in the room already warm and so the as soon as the power went out i connected that plugged it all in. When the power came back on, it would charge the battery. And um, so that's how I did it. I had a $100 inverter and a $100 car battery and uh, was ready. And uh, the po it was out for 10 hours. My heat continued. And uh, whenever the power would come back on, uh, the charger was plugged in, and uh, it would it would uh, charge ten times faster than what it used. So that was a, a good thing, and and uh, so it was, it was as simple as that. 
Well, thank you, Thomas. That's a, a great tip, especially, you know, I've considered buying a generator for my home, but wow, they're expensive. And so this sounds like uh, a potential option that would be lower cost for people that don't have the resources to buy a generator, but might help them out get through uh, for some hours uh, that could be very critical, as you noted, your power, your heat stayed on. And boy, in January, that's really an important thing to keep your pipes thawed and keep from having other types of damage to your home and infrastructure and also just being able to stay warm. So thanks for the call. We are going to take a quick break. When we come back, we'll continue our conversation and drill down a bit about how uh, individuals can access assistance when things happen and disasters strike in their communities. As Talk of Alaska continues statewide. Talk of Alaska is brought to you in part by your local public radio station. Parents, did you know that one out of four Alaska high school students currently use e-cigarettes? E-cigarettes are easy to use and easy to hide. What teens breathe in and out from e-cigarettes is not safe. It contains cancer-causing chemicals, toxic metals, and nicotine. Nicotine can lead to addiction. It can harm brain development and hurt memory, learning, and attention span. Parents, talk to your teens about vaping. Visit livevapefree at alaskaquitline.com. This message sponsored by the Alaska Tobacco Quitline. Welcome back to Talk of Alaska. We're discussing the extreme weather events that have happened in our state this winter and how a disaster declaration is triggered and what that means for a community. And also we're going to be talking in the second half of the program now about how individuals can access assistance when they need it, when they have damage to their own personal property and homes. 1-800-478-8255 is the number statewide. If you'd like to join our conversation or you have questions or comments, 1-800-478-8255. If you're in Anchorage, the local number is 550-8422. 550-8422. You can also email us, talk at alaskapublic.org. So um, I, I want to talk a bit about the hundreds of millions of dollars in federal infrastructure funding that are uh, flowing to Alaska. What can you tell me, uh, both um, Brian and Casey, about uh, how this money will be used? Um, how much of it will be aimed at repairing and replacing older structures? And how much is focused on building future resilience for uh, the changes that are increasing in what we're seeing with climate change? I'll go ahead and start, Laura. This is Brian. And, sure. and I think um, I think both on the like repair and upgrade side for infrastructure that was that was part of the the infrastructure bill, as well as any new buildings, um, all of that will have resilience uh, put in place. You know, throughout the years, uh, codes and standards change on how to design and build bridges and roads and, and, and infrastructure. You know, John just had a great example, uh, specifically in Yakutat, about 
Um, the schools originally built with rain in mind uh, may need to be looked at for future schools or upgrades to schools to deal with um, snow loads, not just rain in, in the Yakutat area. So I think as, as our roads and bridges and, and dams and, and uh, water control devices like levees um, are either upgraded or repaired or, or built new with the infrastructure money, um, everybody's eye is on resilience. So there, there's obviously new technology that comes out. There's a better understanding of the effects of um, flooding from ice jams and from, from regular rainfall flooding, um, those kind of things. So I think, I think we have a, a really great opportunity through the investments from the Infrastructure Act to uh, kind of build resilience into the cake of everything that we're doing, whether it's upgrades and repairs to infrastructure or, or new builds with that funding that's coming our way. Mm-hmm. Well, John, I want to turn to you, and then Casey, I'm going to ask a, a question of you as well. But, John, talk a little bit about what the discussion in Yakutat is currently. Do residents, uh, are, are people talking about what they may need to do in the future in response? Uh, do they see this as an anomaly, sort of a freak weather event that may not happen again for years? Or are residents concerned that this is sort of a growing problem that needs to be planned for and there's discussion around how to sort of harden off infrastructure for that in the future? Oh, I I think uh, residents are concerned. I know I'm certainly concerned. Um, You know, you always have to plan ahead. That's the thing about being a city manager is I'm always worried about what's going to happen. Um, And I think something that is neglected to say is, uh, you know, when there's a disaster like in town and there are elders or uh, so on, the tribe, uh, Yakutak Klinka tribe went out and shoveled roofs and then hired people to shovel roofs. And um, because we, and uh, that was a good way to, because when you have a disaster, you you know, you can figure out how you're going to pay for it once people aren't in danger. Um, but as far as uh, I'm looking into the future, uh, I would like to rebuild our school sometime here, and uh, it has to be a different design. And then I think a lot of the houses in town and city buildings need more slope on the roof. Um, it's pretty frightening to – I had a neighbor who he had to sleep under his stairs because he could hear his beams cracking up in his roof because he didn't put enough slope on it. Yikes. Yeah, that would be uh, uh, very disconcerting, I'm sure, to hear that in your home. Uh, Casey, in a disaster, there is a need, of course, to try to fix things quickly so people can get back to normal activities. But um, how do emergency managers spend time studying what and how that particular disaster happened to figure out ways to prevent similar things going forward? I think, yeah, I think we always do that and try to look at ways to mitigate and, and like Brian mentioned, you know, be more resilient. Um, and so we'll look at wind loads and wind speeds and wind direction um, and then let the public know kind of what we found on those types of things so that as new buildings get built and as new projects get, um, you know, come online, how to help mitigate, um, you know, high wind storms or, you know, in Yakutat's case, high snow loads, what that's going to look like. And I think we all do that and, and push that out to local contractors and local buildings and then local um, residents as well, um, just to try to make sure that they're 
have the most information to mitigate those types of things as possible. And and Brian, follow up there. Um, the money, the infrastructure money, we talked a little bit about this, but um, flesh out a little bit about this idea of learning from disasters and um, thinking about how to build that into infrastructure in the future. I know, you know, when highways are built, there is some work done to help them be resilient to freeze and thaw cycles, but it's too expensive to try to make roads earthquake resistant. So how do you balance the need to try to build for what could be coming in the future against the needs that there's so many and there's only so much money? And so how how is that considered and, and balanced? Yeah, I think that's a great point, Laurie. And I think one, one of the things we all strive to do to, to, to help understand that balance is is to, is to provide as informed uh, decisions and information as possible. You know, Casey talked about um, providing the public with information on wind direction and wind speeds um, to help them decide how to position, say, homes they were going to build or, you know, use hurricane ties to secure roofs, things like that. We do the same thing kind of across the range of hazards and threats that we have in the state. Unfortunately, you know, we're blessed with a... Uh, uh, a high amount of uh, threats and declared disasters in the state. The Cook Inlet earthquake was a great example. We have entities like the Alaska Seismic Hazard Safety Commission that is made up of um, engineers and geologic engineers and seismologists and those things that um, really are 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 spending an, uh, an incredible amount of time to understand the threat and understand the things that we can do to harden our facilities. You know, we're working now uh, and have been working uh, for a very long time with the Port of Alaska. Um, we all know um, that the port infrastructure is aging, that it's susceptible to seismic hazards. And a lot of work is being done to really understand the tolerances that that the, the, the upgraded port or new birthing facilities in the future uh, need to be designed to. And then it's really it really is trying to weigh that. The, the risk and the tolerances to, to build towards that, that, uh, you know, future, you know, hopefully not, but 9.0 earthquake again. And, um, and then balance that with the funding because the port of Alaska is not the only port that is going to see uh, benefit from the infrastructure investments through, through the infrastructure act. So um, I think our, our, our job is really to look back. There's been an amazing amount of studies just on the earthquake and, and how it affected the ground in South central Alaska um, obviously, earthquakes happen all over the place, different magnitudes, different depths and different locations. But um, that understanding helps us kind of kind of narrow down and pinpoint where the, the best return on investment uh, will be, if you will, when we we're looking at making improvements. Um, we look at that on the repair side, too. So damages that occurred during these storms this winter, if there's an ability to repair the building and make it better, if you will, make it more resistant to the next snowstorm or the next windstorm, uh, we do that. That's kind of outside of the Infrastructure Act, but we look at doing that um, while we're repairing the facilities and providing the funding to do that. You know, it makes sense to harden a roof while it's torn apart to be rebuilt uh, than to repair it and then tear it down and, and make it better in the future. So kind of look at all angles to try to make sure every every little bit helps in, in making us more resilient. All right. Thank you for that. We're going to go back to the phones for a moment. Stu is in Muldoon. Hello. Hey, thanks for taking my call. Question about uh, disaster declarations uh, and uh, remote properties, which 
um, are commonly used recreationally. It's not like people live out there. And I'm thinking in light of uh, the McKinley Fire and uh, the Sockeye Fire and the Deshka Fire. Um, do they, do, will the government differentiate when uh, we start losing our uh, remote properties to uh, just reports of uh, hundreds of times of increases in lightning strikes that uh, they've talked about in uh, our climate zone? Um, do they differentiate between uh, um, recreational properties and properties that people actually live in when they're doing disaster declarations? All right. Thanks for the question, Stu. Um, Brian, it's probably a question for you. Yeah, Stu, I really appreciate that question. And I think this is a good time to talk about the programs that we have in place at the state level to help uh, homeowners when disaster strikes. So the state of Alaska does have a program. It's called Individual Assistance. And within that program, there are, there are a couple of sub-programs, if you will. One is called Temporary Housing. So if a primary... Uh, if a homeowner and their family is displaced from their home, um, and it could be a, a you know a home they own or a rented facility, because of the disaster they can't live there anymore. It's not habitable. We have a program that's that's active now that can provide temporary housing for homeowners, um, up to 18 months of temporary housing in the form of a grant um, to homeowners, and then up to three months for renters, uh, so they can find a, a new place to live if they need to, or, or let repairs happen to their home or their rental unit. So that program's there. And then in addition to that, we have both a housing assistance program that helps with actual repairs to homes. Um, it is limited, uh, you know, to answer Stu's question, we do differentiate for our recovery programs, um, the, the structure, the home that, or, or the rental unit that is damaged or destroyed has to be the primary residence. The state program doesn't provide funding to, to recover, repair, and rebuild recreational cabins and, and homes like that. It's only for the primary owner-occupied residence that's out there. Um, so our housing assistance program kind of fixes the broken things like windows, uh, doors. Um, and then we have a program called Other Needs Assistance, which can help uh, repair or provide replacement for essential personal property. Again, the state program, uh, you know, what it isn't, it's not insurance. It's not intended to be a replacement for insurance, but it's really to make sure that, uh, you know, in, individuals and families have a safe, secure, habitable place to, to stay after the disaster, depending on the level of damages. So we don't replace TVs. We don't replace recreational items. We can replace um, things like hot water heaters and stoves you know, bathroom fixtures, those kind of things that you think that you need to have to live, um, not the things that you like to have. That That's kind of the differentiation between the program there. But but definitely on the on the recovery side, after a disaster strikes, our programs are aimed at primary residences that are owner-occupied at the time. Um, prior to a disaster, though, there are plenty of programs out there that look at mitigation. You know, I think Stu's referencing some of the wildfire damages and threat that we have in South Central, and we really have across the state. And there are some programs out there that individual homeowners can can take advantage of to have folks come out and, and talk to them about how to make defensible space around their house, how to clear wood and debris and stuff uh, far enough away from the home that if a wildfire should occur, um, the likelihood of it jumping to the home or the cabin, the recreational property uh, could be minimized. So there, there are a lot of things that, that people can look at on the front end uh, to to prevent the loss of that that cabin or that home uh, from you know a myriad of disaster types and threats that are out there. 
And and so to to be clear, the the state's programs um, will not replace your carpeting if it's damaged. But if you if you have your heat system is has been damaged, that you might be able to get assistance with that. But if you want to replace all of your belongings, you would need homeowners or renters insurance to cover those other items. Absolutely. We uh, we certainly encourage everybody, whether it's your primary home or recreational cabin, that, that having private insurance for your the contents of your home as well as the home itself is really the most important thing you can do because our program, another thing that our program doesn't do is make a person whole again. Like I said, we can we can repair a, a, a home to a point where it's livable again, but we can't we can't replace a home like insurance could. So it, it's really important that folks consider as part of their individual and personal preparation for disasters. You know, Thomas had some great points about uh, having a generator or an inverter and alternate power source, um, having a disaster supply kit, and having the right amount of insurance on your property is uh, is very important, especially in this state because it's uh, you know we have lots of dangers and threats up here. So let's talk just a, a few moments about House Bill Three that would um, uh, amend the definition of disaster to also include cyber attacks. Casey, this is uh, an area that the uh, Matsu Borough knows about. The borough was hacked a few years ago. Describe how that affected the work of local government and um, what you see in this bill that may help in the future. Sure. I haven't had a chance to look at at the bill itself specifically, but... um just going from what I know, uh, our, we have an incredible IT team, um, and they were able to step in and really try to get the borough up and running back um, as quickly as possible. But just imagine um, the amount of work that you do online right now and via email and all that stuff, not only current email work and current technology work, but anything that you might have saved, right? And so. Um, if you've got 10 years' worth of emails and documentation um, saved, then all of a sudden that's not available. Um, for government entities and for private businesses, you know, that can, that can really have a, a damaging effect on, on your day-to-day business. And so any, any opportunity that a local government has or the state government has to help repair um, or recover those documents and that documentation really uh, is beneficial for uh, us at the local government level. And so anything that's going to help either make that into a disaster or be able to use the types of funds um, Brian was talking about on the individual side to a public assistance side, uh, we're really in support of, of that happening. All right, we're going to take another quick break. When we come back, we'll drill down a little bit there with Brian and John and Casey as Talk of Alaska continues statewide. Talk of Alaska is brought to you in part by your local public radio station. The Alaska State Library Talking Book Center has audiobooks and more for children and adults who are unable to read standard print. Learn more at talkingbooks.alaska.gov. This message sponsored by the Alaska Library Network. Most people who received a COVID vaccine still have great protection against hospitalization and death. However, if you're 16 and older and it's been six months since your last Pfizer or Moderna dose, or two months since your Johnson & Johnson vaccine, you are now eligible for a booster. 
Learn more at covidvax.alaska.gov or call the Alaska COVID Helpline at 907-646-3322. This message sponsored by Department of Health and Social Services. Welcome back to Talk of Alaska. 1-800-478-8255 is the number statewide. If you have a question or a comment for the folks that are on the line with us today, we're talking about extreme weather events and disaster declarations. And we have on the line with us uh, managers that have expertise in that regard. Brian Fisher, Director of the Alaska Division of Homeland Security and Emergency Management. John Erickson, the City Manager for Yakutat. And Casey Cook, Emergency Manager for the Matanuska Susitna Borough. John, um, I, I do want to follow up a little more about House Bill 3, but first, John, uh, you talked a little about this earlier, but where are you in the process of, of uh, give us a little more information about the recovery process and where you're at right now. Do you have a full picture of how much damage there is? Are you still getting reports from community residents? Are people still digging out, or are things somewhat back to normal? Uh, things are somewhat back to normal, but the damage uh, we have to uh, determine. I think when you're when you have this kind of a, a situation arise, uh, um, you know, it's important to get assets here quickly, which they, you know, the uh, state came through very, very quickly for us, and we had um, the National Guard hitting the ground, I think, two or three days after I had uh, declared a state, I mean, a city of its disaster. So that's that's a big thing. Um, I it, it really makes you pause and think about how you're going to build for the future and what you're going to do for the future. Um, because there's so many uh, with climate and global warming and some of those things. Uh, you know, do you build a a dock that is at this level, or you do do you build it two feet higher? And I know on Alaska, built it two feet higher just because of worrying about climate. Um, and when I'm looking at buildings, uh, there's a requirement. I'm looking to build an ambulance building. Um, and they require 150 feet per pound per uh, foot pounds per square foot, and uh, they're going to be. I'm wondering if that's enough. Um, it uh, it really gives you pause. The way we built things in the past uh, um, is really going to change. And if I had a crystal ball, I would uh, say, well, you know, well, I don't know. I I, I can't tell you. Um, Climate change, where's your dock, where's your shoreline, houses falling into the ocean, um, falling into the rivers. It really, really puts a lot of pressure and makes what we're doing uh, really an educated guess, I guess. Mm. A lot to think about for the future, indeed. Uh, Brian, going back to House Bill 3 that would add cyber attack to uh, the list of what can be declared a disaster, I would imagine what that means is if uh, a local government has their systems torn down and taken offline uh, by an attack, that this can trigger something that otherwise couldn't have been done in the past. But 
more and more systems are online that run water and heat and transportation, funds transfers, medical records. When you look at the threat from disasters, which ones cause you more heartburn currently, weather and climate extremes or a cyber attack that tears up online systems? Thanks, Lori. Well, I think uh, for, for myself, and I've been I've been here, uh, I'm getting close to 30 years in the business up here, the disaster business. The thing that really keeps me up at night is that no-notice catastrophic earthquake with tsunamis uh, that are generated by it. That you know, there's little to no warning. Um, that that one has the greatest uh, chance of causing uh, serious loss of life and, and injury. So that one is really the one that keeps me up at night. However, on the the cyber security, the cyber attack um, threat is one that is growing and growing every day. Uh, really, every minute it changes. Um, I, I like to think of our infrastructure, our IT systems as um, kind of the new roads. We're very accustomed to uh, building our roads to certain specifications, to being able to repair them quickly after an earthquake or a flood washes them out. Um, but the, the, the Internet, if you will, is just another highway, and it is a critical piece of infrastructure for municipalities, for state, local, for pri- private businesses, like Casey had said. And uh, it's as important for us to mitigate against the threat of bad actors doing bad things um, to our, infa- our IT systems as it is uh, to look at roads and, and bridges and those kind of things. Um, the, the, the attacks that occurred a few years ago, both in the Matsu borough and, and the city of Valdez, at the time we weren't, uh, we weren't the, the statutes weren't clear on whether or not that could be declared a disaster. So House Bill 3, I was introduced last year by Representative Johnson, um, add cyber attacks or the imminent threat of a cyber attack if we know one is coming to the definition of a disaster, which would really free up state and then potentially federal resources to respond to that threat or respond to the, the impacts. Like you said, our IT systems are all connected. Uh, there's IT involved in every aspect of our lives, including the electrical grid, our water utilities and wastewater utilities, all, all of those things are tied to computers now. And it's as important to protect those systems to keep our, our drinking water safe as it is to make sure the pipes in the ground that are transporting the water is uh, are secure and, and repaired quickly if they're damaged. Mm-hmm. We had an uh, email from Ron asking uh, questions along those lines about the importance of, of using online um, uh, that highway for local, regional, statewide disaster preparedness and communication. He said, how can it be enhanced with broadband? And he asks, can the governor's current state broadband task force help, particularly in the more isolated communities, which he says will never be served by commercial broadband providers? I don't know that they will never be served, but um, certainly it might be expensive or uh, too cost prohibitive for some folks in in isolated communities. So, what are your thoughts about uh, the governor's task force there helping out in uh, helping with these connections? Yeah, I think that's a great question. And and just like I mentioned, the Seismic Hazard Safety Commission, who who works kind of on the earthquake side, the governor's broadband task force um, has has put a lot of thought and effort into uh, improving broadband access across the state, particularly in our unserved and underserved communities in rural Alaska. Uh, You know, I think the good news is there is a substantial amount of money in the Infrastructure Act, not only for broadband and expanding access to the Internet through broadband or or um, as was mentioned, it might not be broadband as we know it in on the road system, but 
uh, higher capacity internet connectivity for rural Alaska. Um, there's there's a there's a substantial amount of money from the Infrastructure Act to go towards that effort, but there's also a a separate grant program that is specific to cybersecurity for uh, state and local and tribal governments in the Infrastructure Act. So our office, the Broadband Task Force, the Department of Administration, and the Governor's Office leading it, uh, will be looking to utilize that cybersecurity funding to not only you know uh, spread broadband and in increase internet infrastructure across the state, but to harden it at the same time to put those defenses in place so we're more prepared uh, to defend ourselves and to respond if if the bad guys get in and, and, and start causing damage. So uh, a lot of great opportunity in the next few years um, through that Infrastructure Act, and, and we're really looking at it holistically. You know, the broadband folks are looking at expanding access while uh, my agency and, and others in, in the Department of Administration and the governor's office are looking at making sure that they're secure as we build them. And in our final minute here, what should Alaskans have in their personal emergency preparedness kit? What's in yours, Brian, and what do you recommend that other people have? So thanks for that. And I, I do want to go back and, and thank Thomas for talking about his personal preparedness. You know, when I described the disaster declaration process, I said it starts locally and, and kind of goes up through the, through the channels up to the federal government. But disaster preparedness really starts at the individual and family level. So it's important that folks have a disaster supply kit in this state. Um, like, you know, we saw you could have extended power outages in the middle of the winter and, and not being prepared for that. Um, uh, it could cause uh, quite the challenges. So, you know, my disaster supply kit, it includes food and drinking water for myself and my family and my pets. Um, I have about three days of drinking water and probably four days of food, you know, shelf-stable food that's that I don't have to rotate very frequently. It has copies of my vital records, uh, birth certificates, marriage certificates, driver's license information, all of those kind of things in there that I can grab and go. Um, it includes any medications that my, my family may need or my pets may need, um, a small supply of that to get through for a few days. You know, we really do encourage folks to, to, to have kits available to, um, you know, sustain themselves if they can for, you know, at least a week or two in this state. It used mm -hmm. to be three days. That's that's not enough up here. Um, yeah. But those medications, those supplies, all very important to have um, each and every household member. And don't forget pets. Absolutely. Thank you for that reminder. Uh, it's not just food and water, but medicines and other supplies and clothing. Thanks to my guests, Brian Fisher, John Erickson, and Casey Cook. Uh, on the, Our engineer today is Tobin Shelby. Thanks for his great work. Our producer is Adlin Baxter. And on the phones and social media, Kavitha George helped us out today. I'm Lori Townsend. We'll be back next week. Thanks for listening. Talk of Alaska is a production of Alaska Public Media, which is solely responsible for its content. Views expressed are those of the participants and not necessarily those of Alaska Public Media, this station, or its underwriters. Today's program is available online at alaskapublic.org. This is Alaska Public Media. Alaska Public Media.